I am delighted to say, I think, that it has fallen to me this week to properly begin the study of Deuteronomy, and therefore I think it would not be a surprise to you to be asked to turn now to chapter 1, verse 1. The way we're going to be going through today's text is probably not what you're used to, where we would quite possibly spend a whole sermon on a single verse, or even part of a verse, because Old Testament books are quite different to New Testament books. For the most part, we're going to be looking at some broad themes rather than specific instructions, and these often span several chapters, and that's the case today. So we'll look at the first three chapters today. We won't be reading it through completely because... Well, I looked it up, it's about 3,600 words, and we'd be here till tea time. So we'll be jumping around a bit to draw out the most important lessons, and I'll stick those up on the overhead for you to read as we get to them. And of course, it would be great if you did try and keep your thumb in your Bible at the same time. So let's just commit this time to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have every week to very deliberately take your word to pieces and Lord while we do so I pray that you would open our eyes and ears and hearts so that we would properly understand what is written there and Lord that you would also open our hands to do the right thing with what we have heard and seen. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Let's go. Chapter 1. On this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab Moses began to explain his law saying The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, to the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the sea coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Well, first of all, where are we? You are here. (sighs) Deep despair. Deep despair from the man on the window ledge. It'll come up. We have a technical difficulty. I'm so disappointed. It was a wonderful picture. (laughs) Anyway, after 40 years of wandering around in the desert, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, we find Moses and the Israelites camped in Moab just east of the Jordan River. And this is where the whole thing falls to pieces because I was going to say, fortunately for us today, there was somebody there with an eye chisel, and this is the picture they carved on face tablet. No, not that one. That's Australia. That's, that's deeply confused. You know, I tested this earlier and it worked perfectly. It must be the operator. <laughs> anyway, the Jordan is not a very big river. Um, if you do have the time afterwards, go and Google it. You'll find it's not a very big river. It's not very impressive. But nonetheless, it was a formidable physical barrier to forward progress for a large group of people as we had here. But size wasn't really the problem. The real issue was that the Jordan was a very significant spiritual barrier. And so 
there was just no way that Moses was going to let the people of God stampede across it willy-nilly. Well, firstly, they had been specifically warned off from entering that area many years by God. And secondly, it wasn't as though there wasn't anybody living there already. Uh, remember that their first little cheeky spy mission 40 years earlier returned with the news that there were some really scary bros over there. And so it's easy to understand that if you were Moses in charge of the crossing, you'd want to be A, really sure that God was ready, and B, that the people were ready as well. So Moses takes a pause here on the bank of the Jordan River. This time he's going to get things right. This time he's going to explain everything very carefully. Well, the first thing we need to think about is that his audience have actually not been there and done that. When they hear Moses say, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. The fact is that they know the story, but they have never known the reality because nearly all of the people who have stood at the same spot before had died during that long desert journey. Now, I've often wondered what it must have been like to actually be one of the Israelites in the wilderness. To really go nowhere every day in the full knowledge that you are living all day, every day, under God's judgment for your failure to trust Him. When will this end? Where will this end, you'll be asking. Well, it's ending right here. This is the scene that we are entering. Imagine the excitement and the anticipation that they must have been feeling at this point. The promised land, just over the river, a place to settle and stay, a place to have certainty of life. We're not going to be wandering around anymore. How wonderful. But there's a little edge there. There are giants over there. How are we going to deal with them? Now when we hear the words today, settle and stay, they have a particular meaning to us because that's usually the bulk of our own life experience. A settled life is what we are used to and what our society expects us to go toward. But remember that these people here didn't have that experience. Because they were the children of the Exodus, they were perpetual wanderers. That was their whole life so far and I don't think that that kind of existence is something you'd ever grow comfort comfortable with. Because with the exception of the odd rolling stone, I think that it's true that all of us find true rest and comfort in our hearts when we have found and made a place to stay. But let's zoom right back now and look at the big picture and think about why we really feel that way. Aren't these, these feelings of discomfort and wandering just a reflection of what we lost? In the very beginning, God made us to do what? To rest and to stay with him, to have continuous fulfillment in that space and relationship. But we did the wrong thing. Sin made that impossible and we lost it all. And with this idea in mind, I want to point out that what we are reading here is more than just a Bible story, although it's true. It is also our story too, because before we were saved, we were also wanderers in the wilderness. But God made a promise of a time and a land of rest that he will surely fulfill for all of those who follow Jesus, just as surely as he did for Israel in the story here. 
And therefore, we mustn't dismiss Deuteronomy as just something old and dusty in that first big chunk of the Bible about old and dusty people in a dusty land somewhere far away. No, it's our story too because its promise of home is fulfilled for us in Jesus. Now, every good story has a structure and so it is with this one. I think you'll know that I always have a complicated word in my sermon. And here it is. The word today is suzerainty. And this word defines a relationship where one state or nation controls the foreign policy and relations of a tributary state while allowing the tributary state to have internal autonomy. Now actually there are no exact modern examples of this, but it's, it's something like the arrangement that Australia and America have between uh, state and federal governments with the notable exception that federal government won't use tanks and machine guns if the state has been a bad boy. But this was a very common type of treaty in the Middle East at the time of Deuteronomy. The Hittites, the Egyptians, the, and the Assyrians had all been suzerains, that means the bosses of the Israelites and other tribal kingdoms way back between 1200 and 600 BC. Now, there was a very specific structure to these treaties and we can actually see it in this text. These arrangements would typically begin with an identification of the suzerain, which was just kind of a who's your daddy here, followed by a historical prologue that laid out the relationship between the two groups. And this would usually just have the form of all the good stuff the big guy had done for the little guy. Next came the stipulation. Uh, this included tributes and obligations and other forms of subordination that would be imposed on the lesser party. And it kind of goes like, because I've been such a wonderful big guy, this is all the stuff you must do for me in return. Then the lawyers would get their bit in and they'd add a few lines saying that copies of the treaties would be read throughout the kingdom periodically so there were no excuses for folk not knowing what was going on. And finally, the treaty would have divine and earthly witnesses guaranteeing the treaty's validity, trustworthiness and efficacy. And then right at the very end, there were blessings that would come from the treaty and curses that would come from breaching it. If you're good, you'll get a lolly, if the kids haven't eaten them all. But if you're naughty, I'll bring out a big stick, as God will bowl whoever is my witness. And by the way, you'll be in trouble with them too. So that's a suzerain treaty. And there are a number of examples of them in the Old Testament, usually where a covenant of some kind is explained. And of course that link is not hard to find because almost immediately here we have Moses reminding Israel about the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Then Moses goes on to point out that they have already enjoyed some of the fruit of that covenant. The Lord your God has multiplied you. And here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. And they are about to enjoy some more blessings and fruit of the covenant. Well, that's suzerainty stuff, isn't it? That's the reminder of what God has done for Israel. God has been faithful in the past and he will continue to be faithful. And that's very important because you guys, you Israelites, Moses is saying, you're about to go and do some scary stuff. For comparison's sake, 
what did the Abrahamic covenant look like? Well, we'll find that in the book of Genesis. And its promises are actually spread a bit around in there, starting from chapter 12. But there is a part in chapter 13 that's got all the bits that we'll see in Deuteronomy today. So, uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Now I want to repeat this counsel against seeing this as just another historical moment of passing interest, because this is actually an extraordinary moment for your own life. And this is because if you call yourself a Christian saved by Jesus, then this is the instant here where your salvation began. You see, the Abrahamic covenant is the beginnings of the covenant of grace. This is where God acted unilaterally to reach out to humanity and save them for himself. He promises Abraham that he's going to be a great nation, that he is going to be given a land of his own, and through him all the nations will be blessed. Well, are we here today blessed then just because Israel is a nation? No, we are blessed because one of Abraham's descendants is Jesus. For sure, between then and now, there was the law. That's a big part of Deuteronomy, as we'll see. But we mustn't allow the revelation and discussion of the law to disconnect us from its underlying message of grace. The very same grace that has saved you and me. God was faithful to Abraham and Israel. They did become numerous. They are about to inherit a land. But he was also faithful in respect of a promise to become a blessing to all nations. Guess who was blessed? You and me. We too are inheritors of a land of rest as a direct consequence of that blessing. As God was faithful to bring Israel to the promised land, as we're reading here, then he will surely also be faithful in bringing us too into that new heaven and new earth as part of the family of God. Now, there's an interesting section here in chapter 1 between verses 9 and 18 that talks about how Moses had set in place a system of government during the journey to deal with day-to-day -day issues. He sets it up like this. He says, And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Now, I think I've seen that there was something like a million Israelites this time. Can you imagine one guy trying, <laughs> trying to organize all these people? But the really... Um, Interesting idea that I came across in one of the commentaries suggests that this action was actually 
a great mistake by Moses. And before I go on to talk about this idea, I want to emphasize Scripture doesn't really tell us this for sure, but it is an idea worth considering because it does explain some of Israel's mindset. Although a very practical solution, the appointing of a hierarchy of leaders would have had the effect of drawing the Israelites' eyes and dependence from God onto man. What did Moses do? What did, how did he deal with this I cannot bear you speech? He said, so I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifty, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. So if you were just Johnny Average and you needed some kind of important decision to be made or a resolution to a dispute, who would you turn to? Well, first you'd go to Mike, a leader of ten, then Bob, a leader of 50, then Craig, a leader of hundreds, and so on and so on. Moses was a really long way up that man-made tree. And so, symbolically, God was even further so. His light was obscured by the men perched in the branches below. Now, like I said, we can't know for sure, but this suggestion does make it a bit easier to understand how Israel came to the wrong place. A place where they became afraid of the opposition and the lands given to them and were disobedient to God's instruction. After all, it does seem a little incredible that given the pillar of fire and the manna and the various miracles along the way of the Exodus that God could be so easily forgotten that they would go so far as to complain in the tents that the Lord hated them, as we see in verse, chapter 1, verse 27. Yeah, that's right, Dave. What was the matter with them? I mean, they even had a sign. Well, actually, there was nothing wrong that isn't so wrong today. What was common to them is still common to us. We, too, often forget who God is and what God has done for us. We really need to stop and go back to the bit in the suzerainty treaty about what the big guy has done for the little guy and reflect on it again. What does that mean for us? God has been overwhelmingly gracious to each and every believer and we can trust him to continue to be so. Okay, let's have a look now at how the forgetting stuff worked out for Israel. This section in chapter 1 from verse 19 through to its end in verse 46 contains a description of what happened the last time the people of Israel came to the edge of the promised land. To summarize, they came... They spied. They were cowards. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And in case you don't know, the Anakim were a race of giants. Big guys. Fearsome in a fight. Not the sort of fellow that you want to go and poke in the chest in the street. So why do you think God had even sent them there if there was such fearsome opposition? Why wouldn't he have chosen an easier place? Well, last week, Kalthane asked us why Israel was to be given a place of their own. Does anybody remember what the, the answer was? Well, it was because they had a job to do. 
Okay? God didn't plan to just install them in the promised land and then go off for a round of golf or universe making or something, saying, good luck there, mate, have fun. No, he had a job for Israel. They were to show everyone around them what a relationship with the one true God was supposed to look like. To show his power and might and glory. And in this light, it really makes sense that God's people would have to easily defeat the biggest bully in the school. You know, like one hand behind your back stuff. And then people around them would start to take their message seriously. So, it's really not surprising that God has set them up here for a fight with some giants. There's a message for us in this text. Sometimes there's a tendency for Christians to think that we're somehow different to Jews. After all, we have recognized the Messiah and they haven't. How clever of us. And so we just focus on that difference. But in doing so, we forget the far greater similarity. We too have a job to do for God. And it turns out that it's exactly the same. Christians are supposed to show the world what a relationship with the one true God looks like. However, just like the Jews, we often fail to do that work. Why? Because we're afraid of giants. In our case, they aren't actually large, hairy blokes with a sword. But things like fear of ridicule and loss of face. Nonetheless, they loom huge in our minds and paralyze us. But what did Moses say about giants? Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So that's another answer as to why they were, they were there. If Israel could beat the big guys, then they knew they could beat anyone and anything for the sake of the Lord in the power of the Lord. And of course, Moses' advice is as valid for us today as it was then, but there is one extremely important and wonderful difference. Israel had God with them. We have God within us. Colossians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? As inheritors of the new covenant saved by the blood of Christ, every believer receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And the Spirit's purposes are many, but the most important of them is to enable us to do this job I was just talking about, to point to Jesus. Look, look, this is what God is like. This is why you must trust in Him alone and live for Him alone. In going about this work of pointing, one thing is absolutely sure. We will definitely encounter giant opposition. It remains a sort of war, but the tactics and tools we will need to use will be different to those of the Israelites because the giants we face today are different giants. And we're not left alone. God does not expect us to stand there hopping up and down with a finger pointing at him being totally unprepared for whatever the giants might hurl at us. As usual, he has everything covered. Our tools are the sword of the Spirit, which is God's holy scriptures, and 
a godly character. Well, what does a godly character look like? Well, I think it should be very familiar to you because the text I'm about to quote is one that I seem to use in just about every sermon. God must have some message here. Galatians 5, 22 to 26. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Nothing can beat them. Now, note something here. Can you see how these fruits of the Spirit have a wonderful double effect? They work both inwardly and they work outlessly, outwardly for us and for Him. Inwardly in that they will protect us against the attack of any giant. And outwardly in that such a character cannot help but shine out. This is God. This is what He is like. And this is why you should answer His call. If these fighting tools are so very valuable, how will we obtain them? Well, I hope it's obvious that sitting in your chair and doing nothing is not an option. As we will see, in a moment Israel had to work for their promised land. They had to be bold. They had to actually step into the waters of the Jordan to ford it, and then on the other side face their foes and defeat them. God was with them, it's true, but they also had to wield the sword in their hand. And developing a godly character is just like that for us. We must work to fill our hearts and minds with the understanding of God's word. We must work on our knees and in our beds and on ladders and desks and inside airplanes and kitchens and in the pool and on the sea, wherever we might be, to join with him in prayer to praise and thank and worship, worship Him, to petition the Lord for our needs. And then, together with the Lord as He was with the Israelites, we will go off and defeat those giants. Now, what about all this warfare that we see in these three chapters? I mean, we read this with modern eyes. It all seems harsh and unfair and possibly unnecessarily violent. Of course, that's one perspective, but there are some others. One of them is that the battles written about here in Deuteronomy give us some important lessons about God's character and his relationship to humans. Firstly, he has a zero-tolerance policy for rebellion. And remember that rebellion is just another word for sin. Choosing to act contrary-wise to the God's wishes and values is not merely a difference of opinion that will be politely ignored in the interests of continued dialogue between all parties concerned. No. God is holy and righteous. And that means that he will never, ever overlook rebellion. And that rebellion can be seen here in Deuteronomy in both Israel's opponents, who are worshippers of false gods, and in Israel herself. In the first instance, I think it's obvious then why God uses Moses' troops to completely wipe out whole nations, as described here. Because they were completely against God. And because it's so obvious, I don't want to spend any time on that. I want to talk more about Israel's rebellion. Consider what happened in the case of the Amorites, those scary giants. Israel arrives at their border after escaping Egypt. 
and they decide to send in 12 scouts to check out the lay of the land. These guys are away for some time. They return and they say, it is a good land which the Lord is giving us. And they've even brought back some fruit of the land as evidence. But this text here doesn't really give us the whole story. If you read the fuller account of this back in Numbers 13, it turns out that most of the scouts were really, really intimidated by the people who were already living there. They came back and they said, it's all very well that there's plenty to eat there, but we can't go there because they'll beat us up. They made us feel like grasshoppers. However, two of the scouts, Joshua and Caleb, were not of the same opinion. They had the right heart. They said, yes, the land is good, but no, we must not be afraid of the inhabitants because if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and he will give it to us. So, whose advice did Israel choose to act upon? Whose experience did they choose to act upon? On the one hand, you have this great multitude of people who have been miraculously freed from slavery and literally miraculously because it's a bit hard to beat plagues and parting of a sea. They're fed and led and watered by God's hand by day and night. They're provided with a wise and godly leader. They are given first-hand and physical experience that the promised land is exactly as good as promised. So, do they march right in, utterly convinced by their personal experiences that God will still win the day for them? No, they whine in their tents. God doesn't love us. That was open rebellion. It was God's response to it that's educational. Our human way of dealing with rebellion these days is a good telling off. Being sure, of course, to use all the latest politically correct words and techniques. It's really a very fluffy way of dealing things with things. But God isn't like that. He is holy and he cannot and does not rebellion, tolerate rebellion or sin, however you want to label it. There is only one reply possible, and that is death. He says, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers. And with a few exceptions, funnily enough, that's Joshua and Caleb. That's exactly what happened. Israel ended up wandering around in the desert for years and years so that all the responsible men of war who had rebelled would reach their old age and die. That's a strong lesson, isn't it? You know, it's one thing to rebel and then maybe be struck down immediately. But it's another thing altogether to suffer and to have time to reflect on the cause of the suffering for such a long time and then die to see those around you also suffering because of your decisions and undoubtedly to endure their disapproval along the way. So, what might you do being faced with God's judgment like the Israelites were? Well, being human, you might just try to fix things on your own. Hey God, got the message now, we'll just pop off with our swords and fix up those Amorites like you said, and everything will be sweet as, eh? 
How did that work out for them? Well, <laughs> not so good, really. Chapter 1, verse 44. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do. What a great picture that is, you know? And they drove you back from Seir to Hormah, and then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. Now I need to ask, what do we really have here? Is this just a story about some random Middle Eastern tribe that we can draw a few moral lessons from? No. With our modern perspective, what we can see here is this is actually looking a lot like the story of the gospel message. It reminds us that God is absolutely holy, that he hates sin and must punish it by death. And it also reminds us that man is a sinner and cannot save himself. Now faced with that, if we just end there, it looks kind of hopeless. There's no way out. But there is a way, and it's not the human one, because just as God is holy and righteous, God is also loving and will act himself to draw his people back to him. And that's the story that we see here in chapters 2 and 3. When the punishment is over, the Lord brings his people right back to where they failed, and he gives them another chance. But notice how he has built them up along the way. First, they are shown practically that when it is given by God's hand, it is possible to literally take a land away from giants and live there successfully as they pass through the areas that are held by the descendants of Esau and Lot. It's like God saying, look at them. They are prosperous. They have enough food and water to sell you. They're not just, they're not just getting by. They aren't battling to live. Look at what I've done for them. Look at the providence of God at work in these places. And then second, very practically, they're given a good dose of battle training, but this time with the power of the Lord. Not just once, but twice consecutively as they confront Sion, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and then King Og of Bashan, whose bed, by the way, works out under the conversion from cubits to meters to be around four meters long. That's a crocodile Dundee moment. That's not a bed. This is a bed. That was a real giant, folks. Og might be from Bashan, but the Israelites sure bashed them. The battles were around not because the Israelites' fighting prowess, but because the Lord made it possible. And friends, these weren't easy conquests. In chapter 3, we read that in the case of Og, they had to clear out no less than 60 cities. And here in verse 5, we see the description of those cities. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sion, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. Let's try to take some perspective on this. So you've, you've got a king who's a really, really huge guy. You'd have to stand Colin McGrail on top of Marty Hewson to look down on him <laughs> if we go by the size of his bed. And it stands to reason that if he's like that, well, he's not the only giant among his people. There must be lots of other really big guys. 
So physically, these are really, really fearsome adversaries. And then we have to ask about, well, how would you get to have a nation that has 60 fortified cities? Well, you probably took them away from somebody else in the first place. So you're going to have to be a really good fighter. And then you have to be well off to boot because, you know, good wall builders don't come cheap these days. And that makes Bog's people not only physically fearsome, but experienced at war and wealthy, well-resourced too. How well do you think a bunch of Israelites who'd been wandering around in the desert for 40 years would do against that lot without God's help? And remember, all of their experienced fighting men had died along the way. You'd think it would be a no contest, wouldn't you? But it wasn't like that. Why? Well, God was on their side. And so those giants fell and the entrance to the promised land was opened. Despite his people's sin, the Lord had faithfully fulfilled the covenant he made with Abraham. And of course, that's the second and most important part of the gospel message. Right here in this Old Testament book. God will and did rescue his people. God will and does still rescue his people. And he will rescue you too. What is your particular giant? I don't know. It doesn't really matter because God will be faithful. He will be faithful. And this is what Moses had to say on the banks of the Jordan. And it is still the message that he proclaims to you and I today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your, your book, your word, is so complete that when we peer into it, we just see the same message right throughout the whole thing. Oh Lord, you are so gracious to reach your hand out to us every time we fall down because we could never get up on our own. Lord, it is so marvelous that you help us with the giants in our lives. We don't deserve that. Lord, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And we look forward to seeing what else this wonderful book has to teach us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.